You're listening to Metal Matters, the official weekly Gimme Metal podcast. In some ways, I feel like Swans are one of the most crucial bands to metal that are not a metal band, though. You know what I mean? Yeah, I 100% agree with that, man. I think you'd find a lot of a lot of metalheads or a lot of people in the extreme music, on the metal side of extreme music, would cite Swans as a major influence, for sure. Yeah, it got me thinking when I was talking with, um, with Barney. Uh, you know, because I, I interviewed him a few weeks ago, and um, you know the new Napalm Death record. I think it's great. It's probably one. Of, it's probably going to be my number one record of the year. And uh, I've always felt, even way back to Fear, Emptiness, and Fear, Emptiness, Despair, that there was like a, you can hear this industrial like kind of Swans thing with them. And then a few years after I heard that record, I heard Godflesh. And then shortly after that, well, actually, I got I started becoming aware of Swans when I first heard Napalm Death. And that's why I always connect those two bands in some way. And I, you know, I heard the early stuff first, you know what I mean? Like the early records by them, because I discovered right. the band through reading Henry Rollins' journal um, books that he put out. And um, there's three bands I discovered, four bands I discovered through Rollins' writing. Swans, Birthday Party, Gun Club, and Beasts of Bourbon. And, uh, you know, just that that was like my introduction to those bands. And, sw- and all of those bands are bands that I've carried with me since the late 80s to now. And, um, and then as I got more and more into the band and discovering all the different uh, types of uh, records they put out, and then when information became more available with other musicians, uh, you know, I started realizing how deep their influence was. So, right. uh, so how, how did you, what, what was the first stuff that you got into with, with, uh, with Swans? Well, <clears throat> the first stuff from them that I like went out and bought and I got deep into was actually the Various Failures collection. So it wasn't a singular album. I think Various Failures collects stuff from uh, White Light, from the Mouth of Infinity, Love of Life, um, you know, kind of that era of the band. Um, that's the first stuff I really got into. But my introduction, I would see the Swans, you know, I was already heavy into Godflesh and Neurosis. So I, I heard the name, but I never heard the music. So I had no clue, but I would see their records in the record stores. And I'd always pick them up and look at them. And like, wow, these look interesting. You know, they always had like a, a real u- uniformity to them. Right. And, uh, but it wasn't until uh, the summer of 96, I was on tour uh, and we're playing a show in Milwaukee. Uh, this guy, Matt, I wish I could remember this guy's last name. I wish I could get in touch with this guy, Matt from Milwaukee. If you're out there listening, <laughs> <laughs> my band, my band cable played a show in your basement in uh, Milwaukee, summer 96. We stayed at his house that night and he had like a sick record collection. And I remember he had uh filth cop and the young God, 12 inch EP all on vinyl. And we just sat there after the show uh, in his, you know, in his, his house, listening to those records. And that was my first time I've ever heard the Swans. 
and I was, my mind was blown, dude. I never heard anything like it. You know, I was already in the God flesh and neurosis, so I sort of had a, you know, it wasn't like totally foreign to me, but it was at the same time, you know. Um, but it wasn't until a few years, I, I didn't get home from tour and go buy those records and all that stuff, but I kept it in my mind. And a few years later, I was actually with Aaron Turner, uh, you know, from ISIS and Hydrahead. We were in the van going to pick up his brother at the airport in Boston, and we were stuck in the tunnel. We get to the airport, and he had a cassette of Children of God. Oh, that's a great one, man. That's yeah. Yeah, we sat. I mean, we were in that that fucking tunnel trying to go to the airport, dude, in August Ugh. for like almost two hours. So we listened to like the whole Children of God, and I think the other side was the World, world of Skin yeah, stuff. World of Skin, yeah. Yep. So that was a kind of my. That's what really did it. You know what I mean? I remember listening to them on tour a few years ago. I was like, all right, I've been needing to check this band out. And that got me. I went to Newberry Comics the next day, and I bought uh, various failures, or maybe not the next day, but shortly after that. And that really sent me on my way. The, the bummer of all that was when we were on that tour, I missed the Swans' final show, the original incarnation of the band. Oh, wow. I, did, I believe they played the Middle East downstairs, but there was a Boston show on that last tour and I was aware of it and I was going to go and I didn't. Um, but yeah, that's, that was my introduction, my long winded introduction to the swans. Yeah. It's, it's, um, yeah, there's just something, uh, foreboding, just even the name, everything about it. Um, you know, I don't know, like back in the late eighties when, uh, you know, I was getting into a lot of this music. Um, yeah, like I also around that, like prior to that, I was into joy division and a lot of the factory record stuff. So, the uniformity and the sort of stark design of uh, of all the records, to me, it felt like fat, like a factory records kind of thing. And um, you know, then Rollins totally. was writing about it, and he was talking about how intense it was, and and it just seemed at that particular time in my life, um, you know, I was getting to, you know, like I said, I would, I'd been checking out Napalm Death, and I expected it to be more like that. You know what I mean? And when I heard it, you know. Uh, it pre swans predated even neurosis in my listening you know what i mean like i i heard them before i heard neurosis before i even heard like throbbing gristle or like any of those types of bands okay that's interesting i didn't really know what to make of it you know and and around that time i remember in the you know the late 80s going to record stores and you know and you would see throbbing gristle records you know things like coil um you know you would see onsters and neubauten fetus and uh you know, then all the early extreme metal stuff, you know, you know, and, and, right. uh, and I always, I was like, okay, it's like, there's this other world of music that like, I was reluctant to check out because it seemed very intimidating. You know, I was like, you know, young at the time. I, I you kind of had a very regimented idea about music when, when you're in that young age, you know what I mean? And, um, absolutely. Yeah. And it was like, I don't know, should I reach into this, this world? And uh, when I finally right. did, it was like, you know, cop and filth, and that was like, like there were other the other records were out at that, you know, like the later late eighties stuff was was out, but I, I'm like, oh, what's their early, you know, what's their first stuff? So I listened to that, and it was like, right, the darkest, most foreboding music I'd ever heard, without having like distorted guitars, and there was like instruments being played and sounds being generated that I didn't even know how they were making some of the sounds they were making on those records. And Gira's like tortured vocals and, uh, you know, and the things he was saying in the songs. And it was just this like 
brooding, bleak expression, you know. And it was it was so fucking cool. I thought at the time. So you knew you knew uh, the rest of the catalog existed, but you didn't know how different sonically it was. Probably if you when you were listening to Filth and Cop, you probably thought everything sounded like that. Right? Yeah, I didn't. Background. I didn't know. Like, and I think I'd read like Rollins in one of his journals talk about the Burning World. That that and I, later on, as we'll we'll discuss, that was like the uh, that was like the Cold Lake of the of the Swans. Uh, <laughs> Right, <laughs> but I still think that's right. a great record too. You know, I mean, I don't. I love it. You know, I love Burning World. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely, definitely. Uh, yeah, I love, I love that record, man. Even though they don't love it, I know, I know, Gira doesn't love it, but I love it. I think it's great. <clears throat> yeah, well, before we get into that, let's. You and I both saw this documentary that's making its rounds, and we both read yeah. an oral history. The documentary yep. is called "Where Where Does a Body End." And the book that we both read was called Sacrifice and Transcendence, an oral history. And uh, so I think both of those things, maybe specifically the documentary, is what kind of motivated us to talk about this, um, you know, the the band, you know, and Michael Gere. Yeah, I think so, man. I know both of us are obviously huge fans. Uh, And this thing coming out, I've been hearing about this for years. And when it came out, man, I was (laughs) the second I was able to watch it. Yeah, you know, I just bought it on. I know it was on Amazon Prime. I think you could rent it for real cheap, like two ninety nine or something. I watched it fucking immediately, and I gotta say, man, you know, I am a huge fan of the band, so I'm a little biased, but I think it's probably the best music documentary I've ever seen, <laughs> or it's up there. It's up there for sure. It's pretty damn good, you know, and you yeah. get you get a real sense of the band, and if you supplement this documentary with reading Sacrifice and Transcendence, you get a real very um, detailed picture of Michael Gira and like kind of what what his genesis was and what he went through to make this kind of music, you know. Uh, yeah, man, absolutely. I mean, even like if you know, even if you, this episode is someone's introduction to hearing about the Swans or someone's a casual fan, do yourself a favor and get this book and get this documentary because they're both great, man. I can't say enough about the book either, but uh. You know, you can also order, You can. it's on Amazon Prime, but you can order the documentary straight from Young God Records, which is, uh, you know, Michael Fierre's label. And uh, I know you ordered it too, and uh, I just watched the bonus disc the other day. The documentary is 161 minutes, and it might sound pretty long for a documentary, but it kind of flew by for me. And I watched disc two the other night, 156 minutes. It's basically like a second documentary. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's incredible. So... Uh, I can't say enough good things about the the book and the documentary, man. If you're if you're even a casual fan of the Swans, the investments you want to make for sure. Yeah, I saw the version that's on Prime, and I just and I ordered the the double disc from Young God, and I was hoping that it would have arrived before we had this discussion, but it hasn't shown up yet. So, unfortunately, yeah, it's 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 killer. They definitely go into some other stuff on the on the bonus disc that they don't go into, um, then expand on some other stuff, you know. Um, uh, really, really fucking cool. But yeah, man, it really does open up, you know, kind of the world uh, of Michael Gira and like why the swans are the swans. And, <laughs> you know, like it really makes you understand him a little more as a person, you know. One, one of the things, um, I forgot, it was an interview I read where Gira was um, sort of had some hard feelings against Thurston Moore uh, because... 
he was talking about how how like he, he had to like hang, hang sheetrock for like nine years before we could make an, an album, you know, and and uh, but that's like the least of it. So Michael Gear was born in L.A. and he was a rest, restless youth doing petty crimes, uh, and to avoid uh, being sent to juvie, juvie, he relocated with his father to Germany, in which he ran away from home. Hitchhiked across Europe to Israel and ended up having his ass sent to jail, an adult jail in Jerusalem for selling hashish. He turned 16 years old in jail. Right, right. Which means he was jailed at 15 years old in an adult prison in Jerusalem, which is probably pretty gnarly, man. I imagine it is, man. It's like, so, um, you know, so you can imagine the experiences at a young age, you know, it's like, you know, you read a lot about guys like this, you know what I mean? They have this kind of like, you know, rough and tumble childhood and then this really dark shit happens to them and then they turn into these tour de forces like, like this, you right, know what I mean? Right, 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 Well, there's a great quote and they go into that a little bit more, I think, in the bonus disc. I'm going to drop this documentary a lot, man. Sure, <laughs> nah, man, it's a good reference, you um, know. But there, there, there was a quote from Gira, it's, you know, it was an exact quote, but he said when he was in that jail uh, in Jerusalem, he's seen and heard some things a child should never see and hear. And uh, you could just, you know, put two and two together there, like some of the shit that was going on. And he gets a little more into detail about what he's actually talking about. But, uh, yeah, man, I think I think there's probably some serious trauma suffered at a young age, you know. Exactly. And, and, uh, you know, a lot of the topics, a lot of, you know, even, you know, some of the titles raping a slave, you know, like there's this, uh, right. The theme of domination, uh, weird sexual stuff, uh, rape, you know, all the, all of these things get hinted on in, um, in, you know, the lyrical and, uh, song titles of some of the swans material. Uh, so anyway, he, he gets out of jail he goes back to California and he goes to Otis College of Art and Design in LA. After which he moves to New York City in 1978. And um, he had a band called Circus Mort, which was like a post-punk sort of Joy Division, New Order type band. Yep. Uh, Gira sang, and it also featured Jonathan Kane, who would later end up in the Swan. So that was kind of the germination of the band was this Circus right. Mort band. Um, so yeah, so suddenly he just wants to do something different, you know, and he forms, uh, what was the first lineup of the band, which was Gira on bass and vocals, Jonathan Kane on drums, Sue Hanel on guitar, Mojo on percussion and tape loops. And since, you know, more is sometimes more we have, but we added a second, <laughs> second bass player. And, uh, there was a, uh, cast of characters who ended up playing second base. One of them being Thurston Moore. And, uh, yeah. You know. To go back, just backpedal a tiny bit on your Thurston Moore thing where uh, you said you ran every interview where, you know, the Swans and Sonic Youth go back a long way. You know, you're probably about to get to that where they, you know, tour together, share to rehearse the space yeah. and stuff like that. But there were, you were saying gear, you were in an interview where Gear had some, you know, some sore words maybe about Thurston Moore. There, I, this also gets covered in disc two of the documentary. Really? Oh, okay. Well, what was he going to say about this guy? Well, I guess there was a time when uh, when Michael Gira and Madonna had a little thing going. Good for him, man. 
Yeah, yeah, good for him, exactly. A little side thing going, but uh, this is right before she kind of blew. Like, no one knew, like, you know, they were playing that dance interior joint that used to be in New York, and they are like, Swans and Sonic Youth would play in the fucking basement, and then, like, there'd be, like, dance parties and shit upstairs, you know? And then, like, Madonna, like, blew up, like, literally, like, a few months, I guess, after this happened, and, and Thurston Moore was, like, I guess, kind of running his mouth about it. Yeah. And uh, Gira, like, kind of just told him, like, you know, you know this... <laughs> this ends you talking about this ends now or you know <laughs> he put a stop to it for some reason he didn't want to be associated with that you know yeah fuck um, that. I, I, I never i never i always hated thurston Moore. even like i i was never i've never been a big uh sonic youth fan honestly um i like some of their stuff but i wouldn't i wouldn't say i'm a big fan and i'm not very not i mean i know a few records i think they're cool they're some of them are interesting but I know you. I know what you're saying, man. This is, you know, being you spent enough time talking music and hanging out. I, I get the same vibe, man. It's just kind of this weird. I don't know, man. It's like it's funny. Like you know, they came up with the Swans, and you know, they were fucking trudging it out back when New York was scary and all that stuff. I should. They should command a little more respect, I guess, from from me and people like me and you. <laughs> so I kind of feel the same way. I'm just not. A big fan. Yeah, me neither, man. And and it's like I always just feel like they're just a bunch of dudes who can't really play their instruments, and like they fuck around with different tunings, and like the drummers, right. all all their drummers suck, in my opinion. And like <laughs> the uh, you know, like it just reminds me of living in Boston in like the '90s with like dudes in sweaters, like playing loud music and not knowing how to play that well, and uh, you know, just. I don't know, yeah. man. Like it's a one-trick pony, and I—I I mean, I've seen Sonic Youth live for free. I never paid to see them, which was nice. And uh, they put you on the guest list. No, no, but actually, you know, who, <laughs> you know whose guest list I was on for that show? No. Letters to Cleo. Oh, well, I remember that. Band, man. <laughs> yeah, man. This is like the. Oh, name. that makes total sense. Yeah. Like. So I, I was on the Letters <laughs> to Cleo guest list, and I was watching Sonic Youth play, and I was like, man, this is ain't this ain't that great, you know? This is like whatever, like. Everyone's Dude. like, "Oh, he's such a brilliant guitar player." I'm like, "Not really, you know, whatever." Yeah, we get say that about some other people too, but I'm not going yeah. there. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, the the selling point for them was Kim Gordon. I always thought she was cool. I thought I like the stuff that she does on her own. Actually, you know, body, body, hit, body, body, head, or whatever. Body yeah, yeah. Head. I read I read her book too if, uh, a few years back when it came out, and it was really good. And actually, if you're uh, a big fan of the Swans, read the Kim Gordon book because she goes into pretty good detail about that Sonic Swans yeah. tour. Yep, I read her the book Savage as well. Blunder tour. Yep, I've also <laughs> read her book and. Uh, yeah, I was. I think her stuff's interesting, man. I kind of wish that you know. I mean, it's not too late. I mean, maybe maybe she'll put out some more stuff that you know. There was Free Kitten. That band was cool, but yeah, the Swans were tapped into something really primal. And there was like, even though you listen to their early music, and you're you, you kind of think, well, all right, this is like so slow and crawling, and it's cool that they talk about this. There's like this technicality to it that has to do with blues music. And I've felt the same, very exact same way about the birthday party, which in some ways is like similar because it has this, you know, brooding, bleak, like rhythm to it. But there's also like a, like a, like a swing blues thing going on. It's, but it's yep. like slowed down and maybe instead of playing drums, you're just smashing like 55 gallon drums instead. You know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, totally, man. Yeah. 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 
Absolutely. I 100% agree with that. Birthday party, too, is a great one. Another one's Laughing Hyenas. Yeah. Yep. Uh, the deep, deep, you know, blues influence there. I mean, I know all rock music has a blues influence to some level, but like you really hear it uh, for sure in those bands. On the documentary, uh, Kane actually says that about. Um... You know, Howling Wolf being like an early influence on his drumming, and he he does he goes into this demonstration with uh, a, yeah, yeah. you know this how he deconstructed this blues beat to fit into the Swan early Swans music, you know, and I thought that was really cool. Yeah, it's based off the Howling Wolf song "Evil," I there, believe. There you go. Uh, which was cool. It's covered by some seventies rock bands too, like the band Cactus. They do a pretty sick cover of that of "Evil." Um, the Howlin' Wolf song. But yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the song, man, which was a very great song. Yeah. So for anyone who's just getting, becoming aware of the band, this early sound uh, was typified by, I would say, three releases. Filth, Cop, and the Young the young God EP, a.k.a. Raping a Slave, a.k.a. I Crawled. And that's <laughs> yeah. essentially covering 1983 to 1984.
stuff um things change in 1986 for the swans when uh jarbo joins the band and um so that the band's still brutal still discordant and depressing but there's a female voice that adds like another dimension to the band's sound and um and i think though as much i do i think later in life i as a young man, I really was into those first few records, and I had the other records. But this period, looking back, I think this is actually my favorite period of the band. This like middle period for them. Yeah, I kind of have to agree with you, man. I mean, you know, I love it all for sure. But like, uh, I kind of yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I don't think the first couple of records where she was in the band are my absolute favorite, but I think the one. Uh, some of the ones after that are, but that mid period of the band for me from when she joined until the, you know, the original lineup ceased. <clears throat> that's my favorite period of the swans. Um, I love it all, but, uh, the, and the documentary covers her, 
her introduction, you know, being brought into the band, they, re- they cover that really, really well. You know, it's documented really well. Did you ever catch any of those shows that Neurosis did with Jarbo Singh? They, she joins them on stage. Yeah, I was at the same show you were at uh, in New York. Uh, what was that venue, man? North Six? Yeah, North Six. Yep. Yeah, I talked to you there, but yeah, oh, yeah. I guess you don't remember. Yeah. I, don't, you know, yeah. I don't, I don't, I, you know. I, sometimes I don't remember when you and I hang out, you know. <laughs> I hadn't seen you in a while, and I ran into you at that show when you were telling me about a project that you were doing uh, with Dave Whitty. Oh, yeah, which yeah. Appeared, which actually ended up coming out, and I was like, oh, shit, that's the thing Mike was telling me about. Yeah, yeah, that, I did see, I seen Jarbo perform twice. Once was solo at the one of those Beyond the Pale festivals in San Francisco that Neurosis curated those festivals. Um which was pretty pretty cool, and then I seen her perform that night with Neurosis, which I thought was I thought was amazing. Yeah, that was like very intense. I thought. And yeah, I mean, yeah. I I've always been a big fan of hers. Um, you know, like when she joined the band, like I started appreciating her in the '90s. I gotta say, um, you know, her her voice and some of the songs where she ended up doing more of a prominent role of, of vocals later on. Sure. And just her stage presence is like very menacing, you know. And um, sure, sure. Yeah, so I, I've seen her a few times. I saw I saw um, Swans on the uh, Grand Grand Anni- Great Annihilator tour, and um, and then I saw her perform at Neurosis, and then I've seen her do solo shows like as you know just Jarbo over the years. Yeah, and, um, yeah. She's just like a very uh, you know incredible singer first and foremost like a technical singer, you know, like she could probably pretty much sing anything, which, which I think like just the kind of caveman brutality of like Michael Gira. And like, I, like he just seems like the kind of dude who plays guitar with his like fist or something like that. You know what I mean? Well, well, yeah, man, totally. And then bringing in that, that element of like, you know, a classically trained female vocalist who could probably, who could take it anywhere. You know, she could go, you know, from like the Diamante Galas kind of insanity to like the most beautiful vocals ever. You know, it's kind of cool. I mean, <laughs> you say that about, uh, you know, him probably playing his guitar like that, but like, just think how crazy it would be, man, to try to form that band for him. Like, me and you obviously have been playing in bands our whole lives, and people come and go and start new projects and new bands. You know how hard it is to get a lineup together of not necessarily guys who can play efficiently, but people who share kind of your vision. Yeah. Well, that's like, why the imagine, summary... like, you know, he's in New York in fucking 1981 and he's playing. I mean, the kind of music he created, I don't ever think there was no reference point for it. Like you, you can't say like, Oh yeah. You know, it's kind of a little bit like this. It's just like total nihilistic, like two bass players, like no real, like, you know, traditional drum beat. Like, how do you find, I mean, you guess you got to live in New York or LA, right? Or something. But like, how do you find people that buy into that vision? You know? Yeah, actually, let, let's, let's kind of meditate on that for a minute too, because there's a couple of factors that add to the color of the band too, which is like, uh, really it's covered in the, in the uh, documentary. And they also go into it pretty deeply in the, in the, the uh, oral history too. Um, I agree. This type of sound did not exist you know and i think that uh if you look at timelines and i'm going to mention this too that that a lot of journalist types 
the same way they make up uh, fake genres of music like post rock and post whatever. Tried grunge. to like grunge, you know. Tried to like uh, lump Swans into the no wave uh, scene right. of New York City, which I think is like. I don't think any of the bands that I enjoyed out of that scene considered themselves to be, oh, yeah, we played no wave music. Right, I, right, I, and right. I think that you're probably the bands that says, oh, we play no wave music probably sucked. You know what I mean? Right. And probably were a bunch of, <laughs> bunch of jerk offs. You know? but, right. um, but yeah, there was no precedent. Maybe like in a timeline, if you looked at, at just like musical history, there was like uh, that percussionist named Zev who, um, yes. you know, he had, you know, a guy like tape loops and welding big pieces of metal together and making, uh, you know, percussion instruments out of that. So there's Zev, who was like late 70s. There's Throbbing Gristle, which was like late 70s. And But there's no reason to believe that Michael Gira had even heard of any of these fucking bands at that time. You know what I mean? No, no, who knows? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, dude. I, all I know is it's hard enough for me at certain times of my life to find like just dudes who can play in a heavy rock band and yeah. get it. You know, <laughs> I can't imagine trying to like start something uh, that different and try. It must be so hard to find people. You know. And then uh, just the conditions. Uh, they, you know, in, in the book and the and the documentary, they talk about his apartment, which is like down like on Avenue B, which. Right. You know, nowadays, Avenue B, you see, like, celebrities walking around down there. Like, I've seen, uh, you know, um, what's her name there hanging in that neighborhood? Uh, the chick from uh, Taxi, not, uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> she was in Taxi Jody Driver, Foster. Jodie Foster. <laughs> I saw her walking around uh, Avenue B uh, maybe 10 years ago. And, uh, right. but But in the early 80s, in the late 70s, that was, like, this complete war zone. Oh, yeah. Alphabet oh, City yeah. was like, you know, ABC, B, you know, like C was, C, D was dead. If you, if you're on, Ave, if you're on Avenue D, you're dead, basically. Right. You know? Right. Crazy. Yeah. Totally different scene back then to what it's become. So Gear is living in this uh, environment. Um, I think that his apartment was like a, um, like a, a store at one point, like some kind of retail space. And um, he ended up inhabiting this place, you know, building, you know, redoing the plumbing and all this stuff himself. And uh, it was a living slash practice space where swans rehearsed at full volume, apparently. (laughs) I believe they called it the they called it the bunker. Yeah, I I remember correctly. Yeah. You know, (laughs) just fucking full on volume as loud as possible in this like ghetto environment like that. And, uh, yeah, it's just, like, I, I gotta be honest with you, man. And I grew up in the suburbs like you and me, I'm not an urban sort of dude. Uh, I have never been to New York city in the early, uh, you know, eighties or I started going into New York, like in the, in the mid to late eighties. And it, that area was still very sketchy and very, very terrifying around that time. And um, I I didn't want to be there, you know, and this, this fucking guy's living there making this type of music coming from the background that we just talked about earlier. So, right. Yeah. It's kind of the, the whole story. It's kind of, it's kind of crazy, you know, like to, to exist. And yeah, you're right. You know, finding people with musically is one thing, but then one, finding people would just slug it out in those conditions too, you know? Um, 
pretty pretty crazy. And the the biggest triumph out of this whole thing really is, uh, you know, I, I'm going to say that Gira was, was probably someone who comes more from an art background than a music background. I think music was like yeah. a, a secondary thing for him. So that might have worked in his favor when it comes to creating something as unique as the Swans. Because, you know, if you're a player, you're a guy who, like, you know, you, you're, you're a guitar player, right? You pick up guitar, you want to figure out, like, smoke on the water, you want to play Iron Man on guitar, you want to, like, learn, you know, some, like, Eddie Van Halen solos and shit like that. So you're, you're like, immersed in the music world, and then you form a band that is... Uh, reminiscent of these influences that you had. But if you're an art guy and your main thing is like creating paintings and sculptures and visual visual projects, and that's probably your first um, creative outlet, when you move into music, you might not have the same references that somebody who was all about learning how to play Stairway to Heaven might have, you know? Well, that's, that's a great point, man. And, you know, once again, they go into it in the book, uh, maybe more so in the book, but in the documentary too, a lot of people he's played with over the years have a hard time kind of understanding what he's trying to explain. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's like he explains things kind of more like he's like, he, maybe like he's making a sculpture instead of putting a song together. And I think it's, you know, he's, it's been rumored, you know, for years that, uh, he's a very difficult guy to work with. Yes. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think probably anybody of that kind of mind is difficult to work with because they have an uncompromised un- un- vision. Uh, you know, and that's they're gonna they're gonna push to get it the way they want it, and that's you know, <laughs> it's it's it can be expected. You know, but they yeah. they do touch on that in the book and the documentary. That's you know, I mean, real competent players and that have a hard time sometimes understanding what he's trying to. Uh, orchestrate yeah definitely man and, and um it is a very specific thing that he was trying to do you know right and uh yeah i mean he's had a host of different people in and out of the band you know but uh norman westerberg who joined early was has kind of been like a fixture uh in and out of the band but spending long periods of time he's in the more recent version of the band too on guitar norman westerberg the guitar player yeah i would say besides Besides Skira, he's the guy who was. I think he's. I think he's been on every Swans record. Is he on? I think so. Right? Is he on Filth? I can't remember. No, he's not. It's uh, Sue Han- Hanel is on the early stuff. There was no Norman. He replaced her actually. Um, on okay. Guitar. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, I think he's been on pretty much every release since then. Then. Yes. Norman, but I don't think anybody else has besides Skira. No. no. Um. So all you know, he's immersed in this struggle to create music you know, on his own terms, uh, having like varying degrees of success. You know, just slugging it out. Um, you know, it's definitely not feel music that makes you feel good. It's uh, music that is 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 in and of itself an ordeal to experience live. Um, so oh yes. As a result of that, a lot of people, and probably as a testament to. When we wrap this up, we'll, we'll, we'll reference back to it. Probably a testament to how just ahead of his time this whole thing was. Uh, also, right around the mid-80s, uh, Gira and Jarbo, uh, they started a side band called uh, Skin, a.k.a. World of Skin. 
Yes. Uh, as if it wasn't enough being in swans together. They had to do this other, <laughs> other thing. And uh, yeah, they put out a few things. Uh, blood, women, roses. Shame, humility, revenge. And ten songs for another world. And uh, you ever get into that stuff? It's pretty cool. Yeah, I think a lot of that, you know, when, when Gira started the label, Young God, there in the, in the late 90s, he started reissuing a lot of this stuff on CD only. And it was, a lot of this stuff was kind of thrown together on like double and triple CDs. Right. So it, was, it wasn't clear what a lot of it was or where it was called from, you know? So, yeah, I've heard all that stuff in different, uh, you know, incarnations, but I've never had like the actual releases of that stuff. But yeah, I've heard that stuff. I like that stuff too. So now we're coming up to a period which will either make or break. Like, I think that what I'm talking about is the uh, Burning World and Love Will Tear Us Apart single. Like, Love Will Tear Us Apart, obviously, is a Joy Division song that uh, Gira Swans recorded. Um, There's multiple versions of this single out there. I have one version of it, and uh, it's the version where Gira does lead vocals. And that led to um, The Burning World, which was released by MCA Records, a major label. Now, why the hell do you think a major label would want to sign a band like Swans? Because they thought they could make money. Well, what? Yeah, right. Exactly. But why? <laughs> why would you think that, that they would think that they could make money on a band like this? Because uh, they probably heard them cover "Level Terrors Apart," and it, you know it was nicely done. And they said, "Maybe we can do an album, and then we can release." can't find my way home a blind faith cover and this will blow up and people will care about this band. i don't know i i can't get into the mind of these major label fucking people yeah i know it's just fun it's funny though it's like yeah it is because it I wasn't mean, this is like before like the big interest in independent music you know what i mean it was like right that's what i was just gonna say that it was, this was before like the grunge explosion where they were trying to you know sign every fucking indie band you're right this was this predated that so it is kind of way more bizarre in a way than bands like you know Jaw- jawbreaker and green day getting signed like that, that almost makes sense this doesn't make sense um yeah so they uh, they paired him up with uh with bill laswell and uh apparently that that um relationship didn't go very well well this uh once again the bonus features on the uh on the documentary, they get a little more in depth about the uh, the level tears apart uh, covering the Joy Division song. I guess the original incarnation of that song, where Gira first had the idea to do it, was way different than it ended up being recorded, or it was more kind of straightforward. Of course, he had this like completely out of the box idea the way he wanted to do it, and it did not end up that way. Um, it's too bad. I would like to hear you know what he's describing, but. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, this is the record, man. Like, uh, I, I like this record a lot, but a lot of people, I guess, didn't. What's kind of funny is, uh, you know, I read about this. I thought the title was sick, you know, The Burning World. I was like, yeah, this is yeah. cool. Rollins wrote about it. Then I read an interview with Michael Gira, how they hate it, and I was like, fuck that record, man. I, wanna, I didn't want to <laughs> hear it. Until, like... <laughs> Until, like, I don't know, five or six years later, I'm like, you know what, man? I have all their other albums. I might as well get this. And I'm glad I found it. Because I, I, apparently now it's, you can't even get it anywhere. Um, there, was a, there was a vinyl reissue maybe seven or eight years ago. 
Um, but yeah, I think once again, it's long gone. And I know he's, he's reissuing pretty much everything through young God. I don't think this is going to get that treatment because I know he doesn't like the record. And um, I, you know, who knows what the, what the yeah. rights. Yeah. It's probably all that. tied up in some legal thing too. Cause like, you know, they never, I'm sure right. they didn't recoup on it and, that gets real ugly with record labels and all that sort of stuff. So, but I end up liking this record quite a bit. I think there's a lot of great songs on this album. You know, I agree with you, man. I do the closing track. Goddamn the sun. To me, that's like a swan's anthem. Dude. I mean, that's my favorite song on the album. Actually, mm. you know, it's me too, man. I mean, yeah, it's great. It's great. You know, during this course of this episode, as you see, we're playing some of this material for you guys. Um, and that's that's definitely a song I'm gonna I'm gonna lace in here for you guys to check out. Damn the sun 
So yeah, I mean that's uh, the, they wrap it up as a band. The first era of the band gets uh, wrapped up in 1997, and you missed that last show. You were saying you were. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, they were touring for what is my favorite Swans album of all time. Soundtracks for the Blind. That's a good way to go out, man. You know. Oh, dude. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'd say to me that's my favorite. If I had to pick one album, it's Soundtracks for the Blind. And then they put out a live record called The Swans Are Dead, which came out, you know, ironically, because uh, several years later, <laughs> The Swans weren't dead. Uh, but in 2010, they reformed. So, yes. little, like, over 10 years, over a decade later, it turns out that The Swans weren't dead at all. I but, was pretty happy about that news. Yeah. But during the interim period, uh, Gear went on. He focused on Young God Records, and he did Angels of Light, which um, expressed a different side of his creative abilities. And um, though I do like Angels of Light, it's not, I don't think the, that's not my favorite material that he's done. The first two albums, I think, are absolute masterpieces. After yeah. that, it loses me a little bit. Uh, I see them. Oh, I've seen that band a lot. Angels of Light. They're always incredibly interesting lives. Uh, but yeah, I think it kind of as it went on. Longer it went on, I felt like the less interesting, at least for me, that it got. Um, Angels of Light. That is. So he put together a very powerful lineup for um, what most likely will will be the final lineup of the band. And um, you know, this period starts in 2010. And wraps up, possibly wrapping up last year with uh, Leaving Meaning, their most current record. Now, do you think right. this is it for them? Do you think this is going to be the, the, the swan song for the, for the band or no? Well, you know, if you asked me that before March of 2020, I probably would have said no. Because, you know, Leaving Meaning, even though it is a little different than the, the the four records that preceded it, it's not exactly the same lineup, although most of the guys end up playing on the record. Yeah. It's a bit different to me. It's almost more like an Angels of Light record than the the previous Swans reformation records. Um, but, you know, they were supposed to tour for that record. There was a tour booked for that record in the U.S. and Europe, uh, which obviously none of it happened because of COVID. Uh, you know, now that might that might be the end of it, man, because, you know, we're not getting any shows this year. Next year's probably shot. And let's face it. I mean, he's an older, older guy, you know, totally. go out and play these two and a half, three hour sets. I mean, I mean, more power to him. If he can still pull that off when shows come back and, you know, whatever that is, uh, I don't know. It'd be sad if 
the situation we're in with the uh, pandemic dictated the end of the swans <laughs> if he can't write his own final chapter, you know, but I, I don't know, man, that's a, that's kind of a tricky question. I, what do you think? Well, I think, I think that, uh, you know, some of the things he said would lead me to believe that this is like the end, the sort of book, the, the, you know, that bookend of his career, you know what I mean? Right. Right. And, uh, you know, those, the last, what's also cool is like all the dudes in the band are like older guys. I mean, I, I imagine, I don't know the ages of everybody, but Thor Harris is probably the youngest guy in the band. And he's probably a dude who's in his mid to late fifties at this point, you know, the bass player who joined them was, uh, you know, uh, on the younger side and he was in a young, he wasn't a kid, but he was on the younger side, but I'm not sure if he was in the leaving. I know the leaving meaning lineup, especially the touring lineup was slightly different. Um, I know I read some interviews too. We talked about they might play sitting down. It was it was going to be a lot quieter. Mm, yeah. um, it's not what I want out of the Swans, really. Well, no, me neither. I got to be honest. Uh, you know, I said the Swans are one of my favorite bands of all time. I, I like every record they've ever put out. Although I'm not a big fan of Leaving Meaning. Uh, I've tried to revisit it a few times. I hope eventually down the road it clicks more, resonates a little more with me. But. Uh, uh yeah yeah me neither man like i you know the, the, when they ask him in the doc Gira in the documentary about why he wanted to reform the swans he says something to the effect of he just wanted to be in that maelstrom of sound one more time before he dies you know and that's awesome <laughs> and that's what the, yeah yeah that's yeah totally exactly that's that. what the swans is you know yep. for all the dynamics and quiet parts it's it's that it's that what the volume and you know it's that's that's what makes the swans the swans. Well, what's cool about the swans and this the fact all right the fact that they had this chapter, you know, is is incredible because uh, I think it's an interview with with Gear's brother in the book where he talks about how you know my my brother finally in his life got the recognition that he deserves and he was able to make some money and he was able to play the biggest in front of the biggest crowds the swans have ever played in it was in the later part of their career. You know, when, absolutely and I, I you know that was great i mean that the i saw them at um the same venue actually the uh north six which is now the music hall of williamsburg uh they played two sold out shows in that venue you know and that's a big you know for, as far as i'm concerned a frail a pretty big fucking venue man right you know, and in the 90s i saw them play in a 300 capacity room which you know for me that's fine but you know, I don't know if it was sold. I don't even know if it was sold out. And, and that was Great Annihilator. So you're talking like, you know, 15 years into their career. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so know? the fact that they're playing two sold out shows, that's probably, you know, 1,200 people over two nights at least. You know, right. I think, I think uh, or 1,600, because I think you could fit 800 people in Williamsburg Music Hall. Um, that's pretty impressive, man. And, and, you know, all the big festivals and they had that run, you know, and it's awesome that a, a guy as, as influential as, as Michael Gura has been finally got some kind of recognition and, and financial success. Cause oftentimes like these, these like innovators just operate in obscurity and they don't even get recognized till after they're dead. Yeah. Yeah. I agree, man. Uh, you know, I'm very happy, uh, that that turned out how it did. I mean, especially for myself, my selfish reasons, I did not get to see an original Swan show. Uh, you get to see the Green Annihilator tour. I was on tour when the uh, soundtrack for the Blind tour came through. 
you know, when I was aware of the Swans listening to them. But uh, yeah, when that when that reformation got announced in 2010, man, I made it a point. I think I've seen seven shows uh, since they reformed. You know, Boston, Providence, Connecticut. I did not see them in New York. I don't think that I remember. But you know, those shows were uh, some of the best shows I've ever seen in my life. Uh, completely on another level. Like I walked out of some of those shows feeling like I just played in a football game. Yeah, totally. You know, just like sonically pummeling and like physically and emotionally drained. And it's like uh, you know, I've been on a million shows in my life, and it was just a different experience. You know. Yeah, so if you guys are interested, you, if you dug any of the things we talked about, and um, hey, if you're into the band, great. This is a, a uh, homage to them. And if you'd never heard of these guys, and you, this is something you should definitely check out, especially if you're into bands like Neurosis, uh, Godflesh, Isis, like that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? This is required listening if you like any of those bands because this, in my opinion, is what the sound of that, either directly or indirectly, is based on. Absolutely, man. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Metal Matters, an official Gimme Metal podcast. Tune in next week and see what we have in store for you. This show is available on all streaming platforms, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, etc. Also, be sure to check out Gimme Metal, streaming on the web, iOS, or Android. For one of the best metal communities, exclusive merch, interviews, and so much more. I'll catch you guys next week. Take care.